0: Welcome to Songcraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan.
1: And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories.
0: Please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com to make sure you don't miss a single episode. And while our show is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com songcraftshow. There you can become part of our team with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support.
1: You're listening to Song of the South, a number one hit recorded by the group Alabama and written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Bob McDill. Before he retired in the early 2000s, McDill landed 152 hits on the Billboard country chart, more than any other songwriter in history. He hit the Billboard Top 10 an astounding 55 times, and 23 of those singles climbed all the way to number one. Many artists returned to the McDill songbook repeatedly, including Don Williams, who scored with the number one hits Turn Out the Light and Love Me Tonight, Say It Again, She Never Knew Me, Rake and Ramblin' Man, it Must Be Love, Good Old Boys Like Me, and If Hollywood Don't Need You. Mel McDaniel enjoyed four top ten hits written by Bob, including Louisiana Saturday Night and the number one Baby's Got Her Blue Jeans On. Those who hit number one at least twice with MacDill compositions include Ronnie Millsap with Nobody Likes Sad Songs and Why Don't You Spend the Night, Doug Stone with In a Different Light and Why Didn't I Think of That, Alan Jackson with Gone Country and his revival of It Must Be Love, and Dan Seals, who co-wrote several of his own hits with MacDill, including the number one songs My Baby's Got Good Timing, Everything That Glitters Is Not Gold, and Big Wheels in the Moonlight. Additionally, Bob wrote or co-wrote number one singles such as The Door Is Always Open by Dave and Sugar, You Never Miss a Real Good Thing Till He Says Goodbye by Crystal Gale, Amanda by Waylon Jennings. We Believe in Happy Endings by Earl Thomas Conley and Lou Harris. Don't Close Your Eyes by Keith Whitley. And She Don't Know She's Beautiful by Sammy Kershaw. In addition to multiple top five singles, such as Johnny Russell's Rednecks, White Sox, and Blue Ribbon Beer, Ed Bruce's You Turn Me On Like a Radio, and Pam Tillis's All the Good Ones Are Gone, Bob has penned top ten hits for Johnny Cash, George Jones, Conway Twitty, Bobby Bear, Mac Davis, Johnny Rodriguez, John Anderson, Mickey Gillie, Ann Murray, and Leroy Parnell. He has also written charting singles for Jerry Lee Lewis, Charlie Pride, Tammy Wynette, and both Duke boys, Tom Wopat and John Schneider, with the latter taking Bob's I've Been Around Enough to Know to number one. McDill was named Country Songwriter of the Year seven times between 1975 and 1994, three times each by the Nashville Songwriters Association and BMI, and once by ASCAP. Nine of his songs were nominated for Song of the Year by the Country Music Association, the Academy of Country Music, or both organizations. The four-time Grammy nominee earned ASCAP's Golden Note Award, received the Academy of Country Music's prestigious Poets Award, and was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame.
0: I think that may be the longest intro in Songcraft history. (laughs) Yeah, and still (laughs) amazingly... The tip of the iceberg. Yeah. I mean, I, I was totally engaged. Don't get me wrong. And, and and all... I mean, those are some amazing highlights. I just... I think that maybe uh, one of my feet fell asleep. I was just <laughs> in the same position for, for too long. But that that's incredible.
1: It's amazing that somebody... I mean, 152 times that this guy hit the Billboard country charts. Jeez. I mean, even... Harlan Howard, who is like the standard by which all country songwriters are measured, even he didn't achieve that. I mean, this is like, a, I don't think the Guinness Book of World Records keeps track of such things, but this no. would be a Guinness Book of World Records. I mean, we're talking about a guy here right. who appeared as a songwriter on the country charts more than anyone else, and we could literally spend an hour just talking about all the songs that, just listing the songs that this guy They could
0: written. call that the Guinness Book of Record Records.
1: Ah, I like that. That's clever. That's very clever.
0: I mean, you could say that Bob is in the record business, right? He's setting (laughs) records and making records, right? Yeah, boy. Oh, boy. Should I maybe change? One could say that.
1: (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, actually, it's really cool that Bob did this because he doesn't do a lot of interviews. Right. Yeah, and uh, you know he's retired. I mean, the guy like walked. He just said, "Yeah, you know, I've, okay, I've ruled three decades of country songwriting. Let somebody else." Which do is it.
0: not something you hear often, honestly. You know, it, people will write for years and years and years, and they and they always kind of feel that that buzz or that burn to keep to keep writing. But Bob, at one point, was just like, "Eh, yeah, I'm out. just
1: left it behind, walked away from it," which is which is remarkable.
0: I guess that's what happens when you have that many hits. Maybe you just like, "I'm done."
1: What? Yeah. What do I have to prove now? Yeah, totally. I, yeah. Um, hey, I noticed uh, in our intro today you uh, you switched up there a little bit. And mentioned the the Patreon thing.
0: I did. Yeah, this is a this is a new thing we've got going on. We've we've mentioned it to, to people a little bit so far. But but our Patreon page, where we've uh, opened it up for people to come and kind of become supporters of what we're yeah. doing here at uh, at Songcraft. And you know, with that in mind. We actually have a supporter who has earned a shout out on the show.
1: That's right. Yeah, there's different uh, levels of membership and and we always draw the parallel to public radio. Yeah. Like you can listen to it for free, but also you can have the opportunity to become like a, a sponsor to become a member, so to speak, part of the team here at, at Songcraft and there's different levels. It starts as little as 2 bucks a month and there's different perks and uh, and benefits that come along with each one, but if you are uh, what we call the uh, top 10 with a bullet level that means you are donating ten dollars or more per month um anything at that level or above one of the things that you get is a personalized shout out on the show yep and um we've just started this patreon thing we've got a handful of of patrons they're called we're learning the lingo of this thing ourselves patrons um we have been patronized or wait are we patronizing (laughs) (laughs)
0: i think i think we're being patronized and it's one of the few times in my life where i'm happy to be patronized. yeah please patronize Patronize me patronize
1: me um but we have a a small handful we've just started this thing um but instead of just rattling off a list of the ones who have already joined uh we we want to give a personalized shout out we don't want to just sort of like have everybody uh you know all lumped in so we're going to take our time rolling these out and, and mentioning these folks but um, who wants to do that? You want to do the honors here? You want to mention? Yeah.
0: I, so so this week, let's. this episode is brought to you by Greg Hobby. Nice. From the beautiful country slash continent of Australia.
1: Which is pretty awesome because it's pretty great. actually Greg Hobby was our first patron. He wow. was the first person, the very first one to make a commitment and say like, yeah, I want to be part of this. Yep. And I feel like that means somebody is hearing us in Australia.
0: Which is pretty awesome. I've never been to Australia, but, but the the fact that our voices have been there, yeah,
1: that's pretty cool. So Greg, uh, if we come to Australia, I don't know if you have a guest
0: room, uh, <laughs> but
1: Paul and I would like to visit. We would like um, to stay there. But we, uh, we're not intrusive. We would definitely not stay more than a couple months.
0: And I've seen Crocodile Dundee, so I know totally how to act. Uh, While well, yeah, okay. there
1: Greg just on Patreon <laughs> <laughs> No but uh, for real though Greg thank you You're a superhero yeah. We appreciate your support We appreciate the uh, the support Of everybody out there Who believes in uh, what we're doing And who want to be a part Of, uh, of getting involved And in helping us uh, keep doing it
0: So with all of that said Let's go into this interview With Bob McDill Bob McDill Pretty cool Bob, welcome to Songcraft. Thanks for calling me. You know, like many great songwriters uh, and a lot of the people that we've interviewed, you grew up in Texas. Um, Tell us about your early musical influences as a kid and how you first got into writing songs of your own.
2: Well, the influences were were very varied back then. I I don't know if young people have the opportunity to listen to so much different kinds of music, so many different kinds of music as we did back then. You know, The radio was full of Crossover country hits from Nashville and big pop hits from New York and L.A. and right. and uh, and uh, then, then at night, of course, if you could keep the radio low enough so your parents couldn't hear it, you could <laughs> you could get WLAC Nashville Tennessee and right. uh, John R and the Hoffman, and you could hear what were what were called race records back then, later re- later renamed R and B. But yeah, uh, and then the, the variety shows and the and uh, came along with television in the 50s. They had Bob Merrill and and Lily Pons doing arias from the hit operas at the time at the Met and Broadway stars singing the Broadway hits and quite varied.
1: Yeah. It's interesting how the, the radio was so non-formatted back then that you could, you know, one hour hear one type of music and the next hour on the same station hear something so totally different. Like you say, it, it did sort of force people to be exposed to to more music than they might seek out on their own
2: right and where i was growing up down on the coast right on the louisiana border we had french records being played sometimes even in french and and a lot of german immigrants so we had polkas on the radio and uh, Hmm. quite buried
1: yeah yeah very interesting well your songs appeared on the billboard country chart 152 times which is more than any other writer in history Um, And even though you have become the definition of a successful commercial country songwriter, I understand that you uh, did not actually start out that way. Um, The first time one of your songs appeared in Billboard was in 1967 when Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs of Wooly Bully fame placed your song Black Sheep on the pop chart.
0: White sheep. Can't help nobody. Black sheep, black sheep, have you any
1: <laughs> Three bags uh, tell us how that came about.
2: Well, I was in the Navy by then, but I, I had been corresponding with my mentors, Dickie Lee and Alan Reynolds, and uh, uh, they they worked they they were involved in a studio there. And uh, Stan Kessler recorded, was Sam chance producer, so they got the song to Stan, and uh, they recorded it.
1: Hmm. Well, Dickie has, has been a guest on the show before, and of course, uh, Alan is, is known for you know, so many producing so many of the great Garth Brooks hits, so you guys obviously all went on to, to great success in your own right, but how did, how did you connect with those guys? How did you meet those guys early on?
2: Quite a bit of luck. Uh, I was playing in a skiffle band, uh, when i was in college and, right uh, and we played in a place called the tap room which is in the first floor of the Cambridge hotel it just so happened that bill hall and cowboy jack clement had a st- recording studio gulf coast recording studio which was right behind the hotel just you went past the swimming pool and they were their recording studio uh-huh. Uh-huh. they had dick and allen down uh imported them to sing and and to re- make records and write songs and uh so Alan used to come into the tap room and listen to us, and he would sing sometimes. So, uh, quite a bit of luck for a college kid in <laughs> Beaumont, Texas, to hook up with those people that early.
1: Right, right, right. So all you guys kind of started out on the on the ground floor together.
2: Well, me, me on a, me in the basement, on the ground floor. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> That's
1: great. Well, not long after the Sam the Sham single, you had a a hit on what's now known as the adult contemporary chart with Perry Como's cut of Happy Man in 1968. Those were sort of the the early uh, successes that you had as a songwriter, and it it wasn't until 1972 when Johnny Russell scored with your song Catfish John that you began having uh, actual country hits. And, of course, it was also Russell who brought you your first top 5 hit with Rednecks White Socks and Blue Ribbon Beer in 1973 No we don't fit in with that white collar With my red neck, white socks, and blue
3: ribbon
1: um, Tell us about that song in particular, and then in a larger sense, how you made the transition from, you know, Sam the Sham and Perry Como to hit country songwriter.
2: Well, I was sort of a folky, and uh, Captain John was actually a folk song, but hmm. when, it, when it became a pretty good country hit and I started getting some income, I thought, well, this is nice, maybe I can do this. <laughs> and so. As far as rednecks, uh our song plugger, Chuck Nice, gave me that title and uh on Holyfield and I re- wrote the song. Yeah. And gave Chuck gave Chuck a fourth or something for the title. But we uh we were in uh what was called Jack's Tracks then. It, it later became Alan Reynolds Studio and now it's a Garth Brooks Studio, but we were out in the studio room and we got stuck so he suggested we go to the Sutler, which was a, a a pub. Yeah and play some shuffleboard and drink a couple of beers and pick up some atmosphere. So we, <laughs> we did that and came, <laughs> back, came back and finished it.
1: Yeah, yeah. The sutler's still there,
0: isn't it?
2: It is. It's been uh, it's been remodeled. It's really pretty posh, right? Pretty posh
0: now. <laughs> right, right. D- different kind of atmosphere, a different kind of song maybe these days after a trip to the sutler.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, we have Jerry Chestnut on the show previously, and I understand that it was one of his songs that kind of had an impact on you in terms of... Uh, uh, getting a love for, for country songwriting. Talk about that a little bit.
2: Yes, I, I didn't know how to write those big, tragic ballads, country ballads, and I didn't get it. I just didn't get it. And, and one night we were riding around very late, and I was in the back of Vince Matthews' Cadillac and that bunch of guys, and that came on the stereo, and I, I just really got it. I had a little epiphany there. It's been a good year for the roses. Still linger there The lawn could stand in another mode. Funny I don't even care When you
3: turn to walk
2: away and As the
3: door behind you closes The only thing I know to say
1: it's
3: been a good year for the
1: roses What was it about that that song or that record or, or both that um that really caught your attention?
2: Well, it just seemed to have a real underlying desperation, rage or something mm-hmm. in it that I'd never heard before. I, I, and uh a moment of moment of epiphany.
0: Um you know, we talked about Johnny Russell uh, giving you your first top 5 hit. Um but as important as he was to your early career, it was another artist, Don Williams, who took about a dozen of your songs to the top ten between 1973 and 1991. How did that relationship with Don first begin?
2: Well, Alan Reynolds brought, brought Don to town. Don had been with the Puzzle Seco Singers, and Alan had always loved his voice. Yeah. We were in Nashville, We were in Nashville by then. Alan got Don to come and uh, and uh, recorded him for Jack's little label, Jack Clement's little label, JMI, and had a had some success uh, but Don and I were both folkies we were both Texans and we we hit it off we were both yeah. working there in the publishing company uh, for Jack at the time
0: yeah when you look at kind of these like um, you know almost like serendipitous meetings and, and you, you finally get to know these people that will become so influential I think about the, the young writers who, who will ask hey how do you get into the business or how do you get your first break and the answer has got to be I don't
2: know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you think you did it all by yourself, and 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 of course, I, all of us who did well worked very hard at it, and that worked a lot. But then you look back and you think we might have just been damn lucky, or at least. I would.
1: <laughs> right, right. Well, my favorite of your songs that Don Williams recorded is "Good Old Boys Like Me," which was nominated for CMA Song of the Year in 1980. I can still hear the soft southern winds in the live old trees,
3: and those Williams boys, they still mean a lot to me, Hank in Tennessee, I guess.
1: song is a great example of a thread that runs through many of your hits, which is a focus on the details of of life in the South that seems to come from uh, a very authentic place. You know, I hear some contemporary country songs talking about dirt roads and and tailgates, and it sounds a little contrived, honestly, to my ears. Um, (laughs) But tell us about where you got the idea for, for good old boys like me and, and also in a larger sense Just the way that you approached Kind of capturing life in the South Through your lyrics
2: Well I had a fishing buddy back then Tom Connolly who taught history at South Carolina And we were both We were sort of in danger of becoming Professional southerners there for a few years and <laughs> He got me to read Introduced me to uh, Robert Penn Warren after I read A Place to Come to. Oh yeah. Warren may have been Warren's last novel. Uh, I I thought, well, I think I'll just try to put every Southern theme possible in this in this song. Uh, right. You know, alcoholism and drug addiction, and and uh, uh, the, the uh father son relationship, and and uh, loyalty to place, and Oh
0: no no. Well, you good old boys like me was nominated for CMA Song of the Year in 1980 and in fact nine of your songs were nominated for either CMA or ACM Song of the Year. And because you've got such a catalog and it's a bit of a challenge to even begin to scratch the surface with a writer who's got this many hits, we're going to try to kind of narrow the focus to those songs, those nominees. So uh, I'm going to jump in. and The first of, of these that we want to talk about is The Door Is Always Open, which earned you your first CMA Song of the Year nomination in 1976 after the group Dave and Sugar made it a number one hit.
3: Yes, the door is always open.
0: Can you tell us about that one?
2: I was, sim- I was simply trying to write a hit for Waylon Jennings, and and uh, Dickie Lee and I, I got stuck, and, Dickie, and I, Dickie helped me finish that, and we split the split the ownership of it. Uh, but uh, that's about all I remember. I remember us working on it for quite a while and getting it just right. I think Dickie wrote the last verse by, by himself. Uh, I have to give him credit.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty good outcome for a song not landing where you wanted it to land. (laughs) I guess, I guess, which is which is kind of a recurring theme, which which
1: I'll bring up in a bit. Um, But your uh, your second CMA Song of the Year nomination came in 1979 with uh, Amanda which um, is kind of the reverse of what we just said. That had been an early Don Williams cut, but was revived by Waylon Jennings, uh, became a number one hit.
3: Amanda, light of my life Fate should have made you a gentleman's wife Amanda, light
1: It should have made you a and I've heard you say that that song came a little quicker uh for you than than most of your songs did um Talk about how that came about um as kind of as compared to your typical writing process.
2: Well, I was very much influenced by the band and Robert Robertson and mm. Levon Helm and those people yeah. at that time, and i was trying to write a something that sounded like the band just just for fun uh. And that melody is purposely, purposely, it's very generic. I wanted it to sound like an old folk song. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and also the language is, is archaic. If you listen to the language, it's sort it's, uh, it's of predated. But that, that was all by design. Right,
3: right. right.
2: Uh, it came to me in about 30 minutes. Hmm. After that, it was blood, sweat, toil, and tears <laughs> <laughs> for the next thirty-five years.
1: <laughs> so that was the last one that that kind of dropped out of the sky, huh?
2: The last gift I ever got. Yeah.
1: Interesting, interesting. It's funny, you know, the the number of songwriters we talk to, how many, how 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 much variance you hear in the process. You know, some guys, it's like, well, I just just drops out of the sky all the time, and you know, those are the people you get really jealous of and then there's people who you know maybe write a song a month they really take a long time to to sculpt it and and, and shape it um do you have any thoughts about about your own process and and why it, it kind of worked how it did
2: malcolm gladwell has a great podcast about that uh, i forgot what what he calls it but it's a comparing uh picasso and Cezanne. picasso is I don't put myself on that level at all but Picasso was did most of his great art when he was young and he they they apparently just popped out of the sky for Picasso whereas mm-hmm. Cézanne would have a have an idea and work for months and months sometimes years to bring it to fruition and get exactly what he wanted. Right. Oh. And I was I was sort of a, more like the latter there.
0: Yeah. You know, also just touching for a moment, you when you mentioned the band, I feel like recently I've been reading a lot of articles about albums and songs that were influenced by the band and what they were doing in the 70s. And I, I almost wonder if the band for either, you know, Roots, Country, Americana, Rock Music is almost like Velvet Underground was to the other side where, you know, I've heard it said, you know, only a few thousand people would buy this Velvet Underground album, but then all those people went and started bands. <laughs> um, and that that the band was almost similar in that I feel like commercially that I've never quite seen them on the same level where they've been appreciated by other artists and writers
2: you're right I don't think they ever had a big head did they?
0: I mean, Cripple really. Creek might be the you know or the weight probably the biggest things I could think of none of them were big singles though no.
2: you know the, what what impressed me about them the, the country rock that was that we were hearing back then it, to me it, it, it combined the worst of both worlds there was those dumb rock lyrics, <laughs> 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 and and the dumb country beats, you know, dum da da dum da da dum mm-hmm. da da. And, and uh, but the band, all those those great images, those great lyrics, and mm. then the the great funky rock beats, and. Uh, Put that
1: together. I thought it was dynamite. Yeah, yeah. Well, for our listeners who who might not be aware of it, you actually made um, a record of your own called Short Stories in the early '70s, and you know that's that's uh, one of those vinyls worth seeking out. There's actually a song on there uh, called Goodbye Jim Crow, and uh-huh. to me, that song sounds like a lost band cut. I mean, you can really hear the influence of the band uh, on what you were doing as as an artist, and it's it's like really this cool hidden gem. So maybe it's on YouTube. I think people should go, should go check it out. But uh, that's, a, that's a Bob McDill deep cut that really, I think, illustrates
0: that band influence. Well,
2: thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I like that one, too.
0: Well, you know, when Scott and I were kids, there was pretty much nothing bigger than the Dukes of Hazard in our lives. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And for the most part, when you went out you were going to play Bo and Luke, everybody wanted to be Bo. I mean, John Schneider was the guy. No, no offense to Tom Wopat, but John Schneider was kind of the guy. Um, and he was actually able to launch a successful country music career thanks to his popularity on the show. And he had a few number one hits, the first of which was I've Been Around Enough to Know, which you co-wrote with one of our previous Songcraft guests, Dickie Lee, as we've talked about before.
3: You don't need to try
0: That song earned you your first ACM Song of the Year nomination in 1984, but I understand that song had been around for a little while before that.
2: I don't really know if it had been a chart record or not. I think it had been recorded a couple of times. Okay. But yeah. I think Jimmy Bowen was produced that on uh, uh, John
1: Schneider.
0: So the song had been around enough to know as well.
1: <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> right. I actually looked up John Schneider last night on Wikipedia, and his Wikipedia entry says, John Schneider uh, parentheses, screen actor. And the guy had, I think, a half dozen top ten hits, or maybe... No, I think he had ten top ten hits, and four number ones. He obviously had a very successful country music career, but even now you know thought of as uh, an actor. Um, So it's interesting where sometimes these hit things come from, and... Um, talk a little bit about as a as a songwriter and sort of expectations or casting or or where songs go or who they get pitched to. Was that something that you were heavily involved in? The pitching, not yeah. too
2: much. Yeah. I had uh, I had a really good song. We had a good song plugger. They named Chuck Niece at, at Jack Music, and then uh, and then uh, I uh, when Jack's thing sort of folded, I went with Bill Hall, who's Jack's former former partner. Bill Hall was my publisher for the next twenty years or so. And right. Bill was a dynamite song plugger. I I tried not to get in his way for the most part. Hmm. He he, uh, he was so plugged into they'd have these these big poker games and uh, and uh, certain afternoons in Billy Sherrill's office and all the big producers were there and sometimes a lot of money would change hands. Hmm. Bill also had function as the the go to to the bookie to bet on all the football games and baseball games and. Those producers, they didn't want to actually call a bookie, right. so they'd call Bill, and he'd pass the bet on to the bookie. <laughs> so he was constantly on the phone with these fellows, and uh, and uh, he was a he was a networker.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's so. He he basically, uh, as part of his social life, had had a captive audience to sling good songs to these guys, huh?
3: <laughs> yes, he did. He was relentless
1: too. That's amazing. Well, Mel McDaniel is uh, not a name that we hear every day anymore, but he had a good bit of success in the 1980s, uh, starting with his first top ten hit, Louisiana Saturday Night, which you wrote and which was originally recorded by Don Williams, actually. But Mel later hit number one with Baby's Got Her Blue Jeans On, which was your first song to be nominated for both CMA and ACM Song of the Year.
2: I
0: the girl can't help it Well, up on Main Street by the taxi stand Traffic down, but she don't look back. She ain't doing nothing
1: wrong. Lord have mercy, baby's got her blue jeans on. There was a, a week in February of 1985 when Baby's Got Her Blue Jeans On was at number one in Billboard. And you had three additional songs in the top ten, all at the same time. Wow! Um, does having that kind of success put pressure on you, or or change your your writing process in any way?
2: No, I, I just got up every morning and I, uh, went to work from about nine to five. Uh, a, lot of <laughs> a lot one friend of mine said, "Well, you." Uh, you used to work until the blood came out of your eyeballs. I said, <laughs> I had a life instead, and I well, hell, I had a life. Went to Europe every summer. Went to the uh-huh. every summer. Right. Read great literature. Played tennis. Fished. Hunted. Uh, I don't know what you did that I didn't do. I just <laughs> just you know went went to work five days a week, eight hours a day or so.
1: Right, like everybody. <laughs>
2: everybody I knew that had had a good career. But we all did. Rory Burke and. Charlie Black and Tommy Rocco and Holyfield and everybody did that.
1: Yeah, what was kind of your 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 structure? You know, I've I've heard you say that you had a uh, a goal in terms of how much you wanted to, how many songs you wanted to complete.
2: Oh, for a while I tried to write a song a week, but I I couldn't keep that up. Hmm. It was too grueling. I just yeah. did the best I
1: could after that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think there's something to be said there about craftsmanship. You know, because I, I feel like there's a lot of guys today who try to write a song a day. And I'm not sure that the, the quality of writing a song a day really reflects the same sort of uh, dedication and, and craftsmanship that some of these older songs did.
2: Oh, no, not unless you're just a flat-out genius or something.
1: That's <laughs> just ridiculous. <laughs> right.
2: And if they're all, I guess you can write a song a day if you've got four or five people in the room. I, I was looking at Billboard the other day, and <clears throat> they're all written by committee. There's <laughs> at least four writers on every one of them.
1: Well, and speaking of which, I mean, you've you've written quite a few of your hits alone, but you've also co-written a good bit, and you've had success teaming up with, you know, Dickie Lee or Waylon Holyfield or Paul Harrison, a handful of others. Um, it doesn't seem that you wrote with many artists, with the exception of Dan Seals, with whom you co-wrote a handful of his number one singles, including Everything That Glitters Is Not Gold, which earned you yet another ACM Song of the Year nomination in 1986.
3: I think about you and the way you used to ride
1: out in your riding stones and your sequins with the sunlight on. Um, in what ways is is writing with an artist different than writing alone or working with a, a fellow behind the scenes writer?
2: Well, the difference a lot of a lot of a lot of artists just aren't writers and and they don't contribute much. I tried that. And hmm. it's, I guess that has to be done now. I, I suppose that's what I hear. Yeah. But Dan, on the other hand, was a very good songwriter and and uh, really fun to be around. We both smoked cigars back then. And, Made all the girls in the office angry, and, uh, <laughs> and we—he was—he was a r- lot of fun to work work with, and very talented.
0: Yeah. Did Did you find yourself in the position of having to to sort of um, at times make decisions about your publishing with artists when they wanted a piece, and you know maybe they hadn't written part of the song, but like, look, I'll cut it if I can get you know twenty percent. Did Did you find no, yourself in a lot of those negotiations?
2: I never did. Uh, Bill Hall would have handled that anyway, and he wouldn't have given it. He wouldn't have given any of it away. He was probably asked more than once asked more than once, yeah. I I know he, he uh, wouldn't have given
0: that away. Well you know, speaking of, of artists, one that we lost way too soon was Keith Whitley. And his very first number one song was Don't Close Your Eyes, which you wrote solo. And Billboard named that song the number one country single of the year for nineteen eighty-eight, and it went on to earn both ACM and CMA Song of the Year nominations.
3: Don't close your eyes. Next go, and you'll find more love than you've ever known. Just hold me tight when you love me too bad. Don't close your
0: eyes. And that's one of those songs that really taps into true emotion. Um, were you a writer who kind of drew inspiration from your own real life experiences? Or were you more likely to kind of create characters like the, the way a novelist might approach storytelling?
2: No, that's not me. That's fiction. I, I would not <laughs> the, the protagonist or the in that song is definitely a sap, if you ask me. But <laughs> it, makes, it makes a wonderful story. Uh, I'll tell you how I got that idea. I was, I was going out the back door uh, to get my, my wife and the little girls were. Watching, I think it's, I think it's California Sweet, I mm. think Uh Neil Simon and play. And uh, Michael kane is a, is, a, is gay, and he's married to Vanessa Redgrave, who's about to get an Oscar, I think. And he and uh, she she says, "I want you to make love to me tonight. Don't close your eyes." Mm.
3: Mm.
2: Yeah, I've thought, wow, what a powerful, powerful line. And it wouldn't have to be about a couple where one, one of them's gay could just be about an old, old flame that went to right. uh, right.
1: fly, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always interesting to hear in what ways songwriters kind of have their antenna up, you know, whether it be right. a movie or a conversation, just the knowing when you hear a phrase and, and being able to latch onto it and go, okay, that that's something.
2: Yes. And that song, that song languished for several years and uh, Doyle Brown, one of our pluggers, finally played it for Garth Thundus who was recording Keith Whitley and
0: the rest is history. Yeah, yeah. Such a
1: patience game, isn't it? It
2: is, yes.
1: Well, I know we're really focusing on the CMA and, and ACM Song of the Year nominations, but I want to stray from that path just for a moment to um, talk about Song of the South, which was a, a big number one hit for Alabama in the late 80s.
3: Song, Song of
1: the South, sweet potato pine and I shut my mouth, Gone
3: The ditch. We all picked the cotton, but we never
1: got rich. Daddy was a vet from a Southern Democrat. They ought to get a rich man to vote like that singing. Song, Song of the South,
3: Sweet Potato Pine.
1: But that's a song that was previously recorded by Bobby Bear. Johnny Russell did it. There was a, a duet version with Tom T Hall and Earl Scruggs. And, you know, it kinda got me thinking about how some of your biggest number one songs, charted by the Other artists before their best known versions came about. You know, that's true with. Uh, the door is always open, which was a charter for Tennessee Pulleybone before Dave and Sugar. Amanda, which we mentioned, which was a charter for Don Williams before Waylon. Um, uh, you know, we talked about I've been around enough to know, which I think was Joel Sanye's first charting single before John Schneider. Um, and, and you know, we could go on and on. We believe in happy endings. Charted for Johnny Rodriguez before Earl Thomas Conley and Lou took it to to number one a decade later. And and you know, on and on and on. Were you ever surprised by how often some of your older songs came back around, found new life, and in many cases reached far greater heights in their revived versions?
2: Yes, I I think that that compliments the song if somebody if that's in the back of some producer's or artist's head for several years and they finally regurgitated. You know, <laughs> uh, I asked uh, they had a, a big thing at the CMA Hall of Fame for Alabama, and I asked Gary. uh Gary Owens, I, I said, did you fellas hire, hire a, an arranger on that? I said, that's that's pretty complicated with the flutes and the, you know, all that. And the... He said, oh, I arranged it. He said, I arranged all the hits, and then he winked at me, meaning I'm lying to you, but I never, <laughs> did, never did get a straight answer. <laughs> right.
0: I feel like when you turned in a song, your publisher must have felt like you were turning in two songs, because <laughs> the, he knew he was going to get two charters <laughs> on it. Like, the economics of, of working with you is pretty awesome. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, it really is remarkable. I mean, you were very successful through a lot of changes in country music, and some of your songs sort of cross eras and and cross some of the... You know, there, there were fads that came and went in country music, and you were able to to weather that. I mean, you really were were dominant on the charts in the 70s and, and 80s, and then that continued into the 90s. I mean, there were two number one hits by Doug Stone in a different light, and why didn't I think of that? Number one with sammy kershaw's She don't know she's beautiful number one with shenandoah's if buddy can dance i can too um as well as the 1995 cma song of the year nominee gone country which was a number one hit for alan jackson she's gone
2: country look at them boots she's gone country back to her roots she's gone country a new kind of suit she's gone country she comes.
1: Beneath that super catchy chorus, there's kind of some biting commentary in the verses of, of that song. What what inspired that, and, and how did Alan end up cutting it?
2: <laughs> I kept, I w- well, in the 70s, I, w- I was one of these outliers that came out and planned, uh, people that came to town looking for some success huh. uh, from Memphis, but uh, I kept hearing these new arrivals from L.A. and New York and all talking about saying, well, we, moved, we we left L.A. because we didn't want the kids growing up in the smog with the crime and so forth. Nashville's a better place for kids. What they were really masking was that their careers were <laughs> sliding and they were going to try to remake themselves in country music it right. whether it be an arranger or, or singer or what. Right. So yeah. I, that humor is a little bit biting. So I think my dentist asked Alan Jackson, were you afraid that that was too sarcastic and people might not like it? And he said, ah, oh, they, all they ever heard was Gone Country, look at them boots. They didn't read the verses. The verses went right by them. That's amazing. Yeah.
0: I, I think that song is just as relevant now as it was. <laughs> right. Yeah, speaking, you're right. Speaking of a song that could come back around easily yeah. for for another Well, era. It's, due, it's due, right? Yeah. We're, we're due to have another... Um, oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, in, in keeping with our theme, uh, your last song of the year nomination came with All the Good Ones Are Gone, which was nominated by the CMA in 1997 and the ACM in 1998. And that's a song that you and Dean Dillon wrote that became a top five hit for Pam Tillis.
2: Once she had
3: someone who loved her Back when she was younger She wonders if she held out A little bit too long back then there were so many but now there just aren't any it seems like all the good ones are
0: gone so i have two questions in a general sense what what would you consider your greatest source of ideas when it came to writing you mentioned movies before but i, I wonder what what your your biggest well of inspiration was and specifically how did two middle aged men write such a well crafted song from the perspective of a woman in her early thirties?
2: Yeah. When I we made that demo and one of my favorite girls in the office said, Teal, you just wrote my life. <laughs> <laughs> she was about thirty something and yeah. still unmarried. But I, I kept hearing uh I kept hearing uh young ladies say that all hmm. the good ones are gone. Uh Uh, and so I thought well I guess that could be a title Dean and I were working and I gave him that title and he just that first the first line of the melody and the lyric just sort of fell out of him
1: Mm.
2: we were off off to the races
1: Well uh, you recently made a uh, pretty serious donation to the Country Music Hall of Fame I've been reading about that in a a couple articles Um, for our listeners who who might not be aware tell us uh, Tell us what you donated and and how that all came about.
2: Well, I I've been keeping my legal pads all my life with the ones that I scribble lyrics and and things in. And uh, I didn't know why I was keeping them at first. I just couldn't bear to throw them away. And yeah, finally when I finally got with Bill, he said, "Keep those legal pads in case of a lawsuit. That's that's really good evidence." And,
3: <laughs> right, right.
2: And so then I had a reason for keeping them. So I ended up with a. Uh, 217, I think. Wow. All that, all that stuff was boxed and in my basement, and along with award, all the paper awards and all the sheet music and records and tapes and reel-to-reel and, and cassettes and press. Oh. Uh, and so I thought, why would I want to burden my daughter with this stuff? And So I was having lunch with Don Schlitz, and he told me that, that he was thinking of doing that he still hasn't done it but but uh that that it all worked
1: out beautifully for everybody
0: that's awesome yeah yeah that's really cool it it makes me a little sad to think that in the future there might just be like a whole wing of the hall of fame that's just laptops (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) here's my laptop
2: (laughs) i I write stories and things on word and you know there's there's no record of how i came about right uh, arrived at the final uh, the final version yeah it's all gone you know
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no erase your marks erasure marks or like lines marks. through no. anything, or, or even yeah. just start, sort of like seeing. Oh, look, he started writing faster there because he got excited. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, yeah.
1: Now, a guy like yourself who has so many hits, we can't even talk about all of them. Um, this almost sounds like a, a silly question to ask, but do you have a favorite song of yours that was never a hit, but was always one that you thought should have been?
2: Ah, uh, there, there are a couple. Uh, one is, uh, let's see, one is uh, I'm dancing as fast as I can, which is a pop song, which is on a Juice Newton album, and uh, another is uh, Roger Murray and I wrote a song that John Anderson recorded, called uh, "Stuck Out Here in Paradise,"
3: mm-hmm. which
2: I thought should have been a hit, and yeah. John Anderson did a great version, great job with it too. It just I guess they didn't want to play John Anderson records anymore
0: yeah. by then. Yeah, yeah. On the flip side of that question, do you have any songs that were hits that you're still like, how was that a hit? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I'm
1: not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we tried. <laughs> <laughs>
0: not going to name names. <laughs>
1: um, well, you know, talking about what, as we mentioned earlier, just the, the way that you were able to navigate the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, very successfully even though those were um, eras that saw some very different trends come and go in country music Um, were you somebody who kind of watched the charts, who studied the trends who studied what was going on and and tried to be very aware of your surroundings in terms of a commercial songwriter or did you kind of try to shut that out and keep your head down and just do what you do a
2: little bit of both I I knew what the I listened to enough country radio to know what the parameters were what, what you could get away with but I we and my co-writers we always tried to push that envelope tried to make it just push it as far as we could and, Yeah. but still with the hope of getting airplay you know Yeah. but I a lot of times I just wrote what I wanted to write hmm. and uh, and uh, some of those songs are you know really 70's pop songs some of them are folk songs and but they all managed. they're all within the big boundaries of country music.
0: Well, and, and I, I think about this sometimes in terms of, like, pop music with a producer like Max Martin. You know, we were saying before, when you had, like, four songs in the top ten, at that point you begin to kind of shape the sound of country radio, not, yeah. not even by intention, but just by numbers, by the fact that you're a dominant presence in the top ten, you know... It, it's it's not like Bob McDill needs to figure out how to sound like Radio. It's just that Radio is starting to sound like Bob McDill. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, thank you. I hadn't thought of that. I, I know uh, I've been told that by some fellow writers that at a certain period we were all trying to sound trying to write just like Bob McDill, <laughs> <laughs> Right. Which is quite a compliment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, in 2000, Alan Jackson hit number one with It Must Be Love, which was your last charting single as a songwriter.
3: It must be love, it must be love, I fall like a sparrow and fly like a dove, you must be the dream I've been dreaming of, oh what a feeling, it must be love.
1: That, of course, was a, a revival Some- of Don Williams' record, which hit number one in 1979, and since it was Don Williams who, who kind of first made you a number one writer to begin with, that was a, a nice bookend to a remarkable career. But you, you retired uh, that same year, and so you've been out of the game now for the better part of, of you know, two decades. Um, talk a little bit about why you decided to, to hang it up, even though you were still very successful, and um, also tell us if you still write any songs or jot down ideas, even though it's not your profession anymore.
2: No, I do not. I write some, write some stories, a few stories for a magazine, hmm. Uh, hmm. outdoor stories. Uh, not much of that, but actually, but uh, I was, I was pretty burnt out, pretty tired of it, and was tired of trying to, trying to uh, keep my finger on the pulse of, yeah. uh, of radio and see what we could get away with. And my publisher at one point said, Bill Holland, said, "I've changed, and I've changed, and I've changed again. I'm tired of changing." <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I guess at that point there was really nothing left to prove. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it it certainly seems that way. I mean, you you, you hit all the you hit all the milestones, you yeah. you had all the hits. Um final question for you. If you know, looking back a hundred years from now, if the world only remembers Bob McDill for one song, what song would you want it to be?
2: Boy, that's a tough one. Uh My favorites are good old boys like me, Son of the South, Everything That Glitters. Uh, probably a few more I can't think of right now. But yeah. Everything yeah. That Glitters is a, is one of the best things that we ever did, Dan and I.
1: Mm.
2: We worked on that thing for months and
1: months mm. and months. What is it about that song that, that you're you're most proud of?
2: Oh, I think the way it pays off. The
1: mm. way it pays yeah.
2: off. That it just, when you get to that, say... Uh, the crowd will always love you. As for me, I've come to know everything that glitters is not like gold. It really slaps you upside the head, yeah. doesn't it?
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great well, lyric. To our listeners, those three songs then put them at the top of your Bob McDill playlist from the man himself. Yeah, those are the, those are the ones. <laughs>
1: Well, Bob, it's really uh, it's such a remarkable career. You know, it's it's just insane that there are a, an entire list of number ones we haven't even touched on. You know, um, but uh, it's just really remarkable. And I, I know you don't uh, do a lot of interviews and 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 do a lot of public uh, stuff, so it really means a lot to us uh, that you uh, agreed to do this. We sure appreciate you um, talking with us and, and sharing a little insight into your career. Happy to do it. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. While Songcraft will always be available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com/songcraftshow. That's p a t r e o n.com/songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help SongCraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a valued supporter.
0: Thanks for sharing some time with us. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of SongCraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters.